We will begin today studying the Gospels in accordance with the instructions of Santa Jeb Singh as given to me last January. I'm going to begin with the first chapter of the Gospel of John. And the reason for that is that as far as I understand these things, that the Gospel of John is the key book of the Bible from a spiritual point of view. And I will begin by reading the first 18 verses, although we will not probably comment on all of them today. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Uh, to begin, I think in the discourse that was read last week, given by Sanchi, some very, from the point of view of the world, some very astounding, I think, assertions were made. Okay, we are used to them because we have heard the Masters have been saying that right along. But from the point of view of the world, the assertion that the satsangis are the true Christians is perhaps a bit topsy-turvy. Okay, this would excite a great deal of argument in many places and uh, a lot of upset, I think, feelings. Okay, obviously, we use, he uses the term Christian not in the sense of having achieved necessarily anything, but in the sense that the preoccupations and the concerns and the direction of the satsangis are similar to that of Christ. And here I think the question of perspective really comes uh, becomes very important. Because as many of you know, um, I was at one time a member, a very strong and devoted member, of one branch of the Christian faith, uh, the Orthodox Christian faith as it has come down to us, namely the evangelical born-again type branch. And... Uh, Two years, in fact, I spent in an evangelical college preparing to be a minister in this particular faith. And 
it was one of the things, there were many reasons why I left that particular um, school of thought and studied search further. But one of them was a, a growing realization that the concerns and preoccupations of the people there were not those of Christ. That this was uh, a very peculiar thing that had happened in that their concerns and preoccupations were all about him but had little to do with anything with which anything that he had said. And you will find uh, that if you listen carefully to sermons in most branches of the Christian faith, now you will find this is so, that the emphasis is about the person and the theological uh, significance of the mission of Jesus, but never about the things that he personally cared about and devoted his life to impressing on us. And sermon after sermon will not be on the Gospels, but will be on the letters of St. Paul, which is not to say that the letters of St. Paul also do not have um, a lot of relevance, or that he also did not have spiritual stature, which he did, but the the weight is different. The uh, concerns are different. Another thing in connection with perspective, which people find hard to believe, hard to accept, and which is one of the reasons why I think that it's difficult for people living in the Western world, in the Christian civilization, to accept the living master. And that is that a very, although the Gospels are very clear as to exactly what Jesus' life was like, very clear, um, this is not really paid attention to from an immediate, in the sense of having any understanding of what is really meant. For example, in the section just read, he was in the world and the world was made by him and the world knew him not. He came unto his own and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God even to them that believe on his name. This is a tremendous section, I think, one of the most important, perhaps, in the whole Bible. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. This can be said of most masters, I think, that uh, they came unto their own, and their own received them not. In the case of, uh, of the modern masters, this is most obvious application is to the disciples of their master who are waiting, supposedly waiting for them to come. And yet in time after time, instance after instance, we find that the very people who are supposed to be expecting the master instead reject him. And so as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. In other words, he gave the power to become that which he is. Now, to grasp the sense of he was in the world and the world was made by him and the world knew him not, what this means. Jesus said elsewhere, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath nowhere to lay his head. Um, to be rejected by the world of which you are the ultimate creator is a very powerful kind of thing. It says a lot about the, the fallen nature of the universe and the fact that it keeps happening um, lends it even more strength and poignancy. But it is important 
to realize that during his lifetime, Jesus was not a rousing success. Some time ago, in connection with the controversy that had arisen amongst the Sangha, I published in the January 78, I think it was, Santani, a quote from a historian of Christianity in which he just he presented Jesus' life in very sharp terms, exactly the way it could have been presented objectively. Nobody, very few people paid attention to him. His own, his, the people who knew him best rejected him. He picked up only a handful of disciples out of the many that came to hear him. Out of those, it is doubtful that hardly any understood what he was talking about. And finally, one of those, probably because he came to believe that he didn't know what he had gotten into, uh, betrayed him. So that, in a sense, looking at it from that point of view, his whole life was one of um, lack of comprehension. The light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. Uh, and ultimately, betrayal. And this has always been the case with all masters. But when we read the Bible or try to grasp the, the sense of the gospel from the 2,000 years perspective that we have, okay, which are dominated by the resurrected the figure of the glorious resurrected Christ whom everyone that we know, almost anyway, believes in from infancy on up. You see, then we have a, there is a hard task to reconcile this with the man of sorrows, you know, the rejected, betrayed person who, after all, couldn't even find a house to be born in, and who um, died the death of a common criminal. So there is a vast difference, and, and people tend to um, think of the one in terms of the other, which makes the statement now. When we say the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, those of us who have spent time with living masters, right, we apply that to them without any problem whatsoever because we've had our experience tells us that this is an entirely appropriate thing to say about a genuinely and perfectly holy man who manifests God to us by sitting at the feet of whom we come to have some understanding of what God is like. Which is the point. And if, if, if the statement that the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us means anything, then it has to mean that. And so from our experience, we know that this is, um, this is a very appropriate thing to say. And yet from the point of view of, of you see, someone who is caught up in, in theology or in institutional um, bonds, or who uh, finds it can only accept the the glorified Christ figure as the only kind of person in whom it might be said that the Word was made flesh, such a person would have the same difficulty in accepting this statement about the living masters as the people in Christ's day did about him, by and large. It was a derisive thing. This particular passage that I just read to you was written sometime after uh, Jesus had left the body in the world. And it was written of course, by a devoted disciple of his, and it was um, circulated amongst people who were believers. But had that statement been made at the time, what was the the world's reaction? Can any good thing come out of Galilee? It was a ridiculous idea. Galilee was the place where prophets could not come. 
because that wasn't the pure, the pure Jewish religion did not exist there, according to the people of Jerusalem, etc. It was a, it was a corrupt and mixed up affair. So that, uh, this statement is no more meaningless or no more inappropriately, it struck people as inappropriate at the time to have applied it to Jesus as it does to other people other than us to apply it to the living masters today and for the same reasons. It is always easier to accept that which was in the past and which has stand somewhat transfigured by the passage of time uh, than it does to accept what is right in front of us today. And one of the whole points, one of the reasons why the Gospel of John is so important is because it is a record of Jesus confronting precisely this attitude from beginning to end the thing that he is laying laying on his listeners is pay attention to what's here now the living thing this is what counts not what came in the past that was then this is now and we find that over and over again I think remember that when Peter denied Jesus three times okay there was a reason for it after all this was an astounding thing. When I was younger and studying the Bible from a more orthodox Christian perspective, this used to give me pause. Why would Peter deny Christ at this, at this juncture? After all, Peter had walked on the water with Christ, according to the Gospel. Peter was the one who had, who had recognized who he really was in that tremendous passage often quoted by Master Kapal. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. He had known that. Jesus said, Flesh and blood hath not revealed it to thee, but my Father in heaven has revealed it to thee. And yet, here at the, at the time of Jesus being taken into trial, um, Peter had denied him three times. And this was curious to me, and I did not fully grasp exactly what was happening, that the disciples had thought, that Jesus' entry into Jerusalem would be a time of triumph. And of course he did um, enter triumphantly, as we know. He was uh, recognized and, and uh, given loud cheers and so forth on Palm Sunday. Um, but what happened after that is that it just sort of fizzled out. He did not do or say anything that was in accord with their expectations. And instead, he allowed himself to be taken prisoner and uh, murdered. And this was a very hard thing to swallow. But a thing happened, a very curious thing happened in the very first days of my physical acquaintance with Kripal Singh, which made me understand why Peter did what he did afterwards. And this is a story that I've not told often, um, but I will tell it now. And that is shortly after Master came here in 1963, in September, in Washington, D.C., not here. This was a month before he came here. Uh, he arrived on September 1st, and on the second or third day, I think the second day of his arrival, a press conference had been scheduled in a big downtown building. You get famous one where press conferences are often scheduled at a ballroom in some big building downtown. And uh, his representatives had, had worked this out. They had scheduled this press conference. And in my naivete, I had assumed that um, 
that the master would, this would be a great triumphant thing. The picture that went out with it was taken during the 55 tour and it showed him sitting with a bunch of very eager looking reporters sitting around on the floor with pencils, sharp looking pencils in their hands, eager to take down every word. I thought it would be something like that. We arrived at the room of the conference and there was uh, nobody there. And we sat down, and in a short while, the master arrived, and there was still nobody there. There, there was us, you know, the disciples, but that was, well, it wasn't a satsang, it was a press conference, and, there, and nobody had arrived. So, um, the organizer called some of us aside and told us to go get some reporters, to do anything possible but to get them. So, uh, I went out with one other person, and we went, uh, the, there were offices of reporters upstairs, and I went to, uh, we knocked on this door of this lady who worked for Newsweek magazine, and we talked fast. I pulled out a picture of the master, and I, and I said that, uh, this is, you know, you're an interesting guy, and, and, uh, she looked at his picture, and she said, he's, he's downstairs right now? And I said, yes, yes, right down, right down there. And she said, alright, I'll come. So we went down, and altogether about five reporters were collected. Okay? And one of them was drunk. Now, uh, the interesting thing is that that drunk guy um, dominated the whole thing. And he asked question after question that made very little sense. And the master, uh, you know, answered each question as though it were the most important question in the world, I will, I will just say. And so patiently and, and lovingly he answered that guy's questions. Uh, the other reporters, however, all walked out after about five minutes because they couldn't they couldn't get a word in edgewise and they couldn't figure you know anything. Well, finally the thing was over, and uh, as the master was leaving, someone said to him, "You know, master, that that man was drunk. He was asking you all those questions." And he looked at him with the most radiant smile and said, "That's all right." And he went on out. Now, later I realized that that particular incident showed his greatness as much as anything can. That it is very often, that the greatness of the masters very often lies in just this. That they can be, you know, at the absolute bottom by every worldly standard and still be on top. And this is the message of the crucifixion also. But uh, at the time, you see, I was really disillusioned. Not inwardly so much. It's hard to explain. I think that I felt very much like Peter did. And I know that other satsangis felt somewhat... We felt that there had been a fiasco. That the master of the universe had come and that, you know, this thing had been set up and uh, and it had, been a, it had been a flop. And it was really hard to take. And I remember standing out on the sidewalk afterwards and another brother, satsangi, came up to me and he said... He was thinking exactly like I was because he said, now if anyone had come into that building and asked you if you were connected with that man, what would you have said? And the thought flashed through me that I would have that I would have tried to pretend that I had nothing to do with it during the time that was going on. And then I realized exactly why Peter the the psycholo- the psychology behind Peter's three time denial. And it was a hard thing, you know, it was a hard thing to realize. Well I you know, survived that and does things happen? And it is a fact that the humiliation of the master is implicit in the very fact 
of the Word becoming flesh to begin with, I think. And that uh, it's always true that the world is made by Him and the world knows Him not. And that He comes unto His own and His own receive Him not. This is an eternal truth that happens over and over and over again. And uh, in my lifetime I've seen this acted out many different ways in many different occasions, but it remains a truth and a part of the deal. Okay. The Word. I think, Master, no section of the Bible perhaps has been referred to more often by the Masters, especially Master Kapal, than this beginning section. And in the Crown of Life and Namo Word and many other places, he has commented on it to a great extent. Um, I do want to, however, point out that this did not come out of a vacuum, although it has often been said that the concept of the word in this sense of the creative power of God expressed through the similes of sound in the use of the very word word and also light, as is mentioned many times uh, in the immediate passage, uh, is, is a Greek concept. It has often been said that this is true, and it is. It is also found in the Old Testament. In other words, it is a part of the Jewish religion which Jesus was a member of and which he never abrogated, although he did it very similarly as Kabir did with the Indian uh, tradition of his day. Uh, he turned it on his head, on its head in many respects. And that is, to a great extent, the teaching of Jesus is a selection and a... And a uh, a very subtle kind of inversion of a lot of ideas that were present in the Jewish scriptures which he quoted from constantly. In the 8th chapter of the book of Proverbs is a marvelous section not about the word per se but about what is called wisdom. And the word wisdom here, the Hebrew is chokmah and it is an equivalent of the Sanskrit ganana or the Hindi gyan which in his book Namo Word Master um, makes clear is a synonym, ultimately a synonym for Nam or Shabbat or the Word. So it is another way of expressing um, the creative power of God which exists within everybody. And this is a very remarkable chapter which I will read uh, in its entirety, which makes little sense in the context in which it is. The book of Proverbs you know, is about largely about wisdom in a more mundane or ordinary sense. It's as though in Sanskrit there are two terms, jnana and vijnana, um, apravidya, paravidya, and in Hebrew there is only one word. But the context remains the same, but the meaning shifts. And uh, so this is, just as in Kabir's hymn that we sing so often, Shabada Pukara Pukara Kahetahe, the Shabbat is calling forth proclaiming loudly. Um, and truly speaking, it is within our hearts doing that. In the same way, this is wisdom here is personified as the word in this sense. Doth not wisdom cry and understanding put forth her voice? She standeth in the top of high places by the way in the places of the paths. She crieth at the gates, at the entry of the city, at the coming in at the doors. Unto you, O men, I call, and my voice is to the sons of man. O ye simple, understand wisdom, and ye fools, be ye of an understanding heart. 
Hear, for I will speak of excellent things, and the opening of my lips shall be right things. For my mouth shall speak truth, and wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All the words of my mouth are in righteousness. There is nothing froward or perverse in them. They are all plain to him that understandeth, and right to them that find knowledge. Receive my instruction, and not silver, and knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is better than rubies, and all the things that may be desired are not to be compared to it. Counsel is mine, and sound wisdom. I am understanding, I have strength. By me kings reign, and princes decree justice. By me princes rule, and nobles, even all the judges of the earth. I love them that love me, and those that seek me early shall find me. Riches and honor are with me, yea, durable riches and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold, yea, than fine gold, and my revenue than choice silver. The Lord possessed me in the beginning of his way, before his works of old. I was set up from everlasting, from the beginning, wherever the earth was. When there were no depths, I was brought forth, when there were no fountains abounding with water. Before the mountains were settled, before the hills was I brought forth, while as yet he had not made the earth, nor the fields, nor the highest part of the dust of the world. When he prepared the heavens, I was there, when he set a compass upon the face of the depth, when he established the clouds above, when he strengthened the fountains of the deep, when he gave to the sea his decree that the waters should not pass his commandment, when he appointed the foundations of the earth, then I was by him, as one brought up with him, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him, rejoicing in the habitable parts of his earth, and my delights were with the sons of men. Now therefore hearken unto me, O ye children, for blessed are they that keep my ways. Hear instruction, and be wise, and refuse it not. Blessed is the man that heareth me, watching daily at my gates, waiting at the posts of my doors. For whoso findeth me findeth life, and shall obtain favor of the Lord. But he that sinneth against me wrongeth his own soul. All they that hate me love death. And that chapter has been almost universally, as far as I know, identified and uh, correlated with the, the section from the Gospel of John that I read earlier. Also, of course, in the, in the uh, first chapter of Genesis, where it is said that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. Again, the, the use of sound and light in the very beginning uh, of time. It may be said that that word, that in the beginning was the word, is an explanation or a further comment on this passage in which God said, Let there be light. And obviously that is spiritual light even in the terms of the um, passage itself because the sun was not after all created until the fourth day. So the light that was coming until that time is supposed to be 
spiritual light coming from a higher source, even in the terms in which the book was written. And there is one thing that is, again, a matter of perspective. Um, it is very easy to assume, okay, that the the ways in which we understand these things, the ways that we were brought up, uh, you know, that it's always been like this. And in the in the Christian Church, in the Christian civilization as we know it today, there is little room for the things that the Masters talk about. Not only the idea of the living Guru, leaving aside that, but the idea of actual meditation on light and sound, uh, and various other questions, initiation, and so forth. Um, it just doesn't fit, you know, anywhere in the in the in the way, in, in the program as it is set up. It has not always been this way, even in, in Christian civilization. The more that you study, the more you realize that down through the centuries, to an amazing extent, the teachings of Jesus, the true teachings, did survive. It has been primarily in the last four or five hundred years that they have been lost sight of to the extent that they have. The perspective has altered to the extent that it has. We find, for example, in, in St. Augustine's day, okay, 400 years after Christ, that uh, baptism, and we will get into, I think maybe next week, uh, the question of baptism and initiation and so forth. The baptism, which was still considered as initiation, even then, 400 years later, uh, was often postponed by ordinary people until the end of their life because they were afraid of the commitment. They would not, they would become Christians of a sort. They would become, they would call themselves, I forget the term, I think it's something like auditor. And they would attend the meetings and they would learn the teachings, but they were afraid that the commitment was so heavy and what it demanded was so great that they would postpone it till the end. And uh, only those people who are considered really holy or brave or daring or who were, as Augustine himself put it, driven to find God, they would take the initiation and, and uh, work hard on their meditations and so forth. And that Augustine himself did that is undeniable uh, to anyone who has read his, li- his writings. And he has referred more specifically than almost anyone else to the um, fact of the inner light. So much so that in uh, when we studied Augustine in medieval philosophy class that I was privileged to take, uh, the professor explained that no one really understands what he means by inner light. And what he's talking about, his concept of illumination, is not clear. That No one really knows what, what he's talking about. And of course, that's a modern development, I think, at least as far as I can tell. And then, this remarkable passage um, from Thomas Merton about a big problem that occurred in the 14th century okay, in the Orthodox Church. He's speaking of, um, he says that Athos in the Middle Ages, this is Mount Athos, the famous Greek monastery, was the center of a powerful mystical revival, the so-called Hesychast movement. Hesychasm is the practice of Simran is what it is. It's the remembrance of God, the repetition 
of words given to someone by a spiritual director with which they repeat constantly during their meditation, also at all times when they're reading, walking, talking, sitting, etc. And uh, the most famous exemplar of Esikasm is in the book The Way of the Pilgrim, which many of you may have read. But it's, it was a widespread movement in the Orthodox Church um, and very controversial. Uh, people said that it was Indian, as a matter of fact that it was Oriental and yogic and uh, not Christian. And the people who followed it uh, had a hard time um, maintaining that it was indeed as much Christian as it was uh, Oriental. It's one of the things about the universal spiritual tradition is, of course, that if you really are a provincialist, okay, a chauvinist from your, of your own tradition, that if you, you find out that something is universal, that almost is against it. And I've read um, an account of, I think, the theologian Tillich, Protestant theologian Tillich, in which the person said that he is, his ideas are, are non-Christian, oriental, uh, something else, and therefore wrong. And it's a very easy way to deal with, of course, um, universal spiritual ideas. So Merton continues, the term hesychasm has had a very bad press in the West where it has been grossly misunderstood. St. Gregory Palamas, a monk of Athos who later became Archbishop of Salonika, was the chief defender of hesychasm in the 14th century against a Greek from Italy called Barlam of Calabria. Barlam, in practice, considered all mystical experience more or less illusory. At best, it was only a product of refined aesthetic fervor enkindled by symbols. St. Gregory Palamas, on the other hand, defended the thesis that the divine light, the same light that was seen by the three apostles who saw the vision of the transfigured Savior on Mount Tabor, could be experienced directly in this present life. He held that this light was not a mere symbol of the divinity, but an experience of the divine energies. Barlam was formally defeated, in the Oriental Church upheld the teachings of Palamas. But this Barlam withdrew to the West and went over to Rome, not so much because of devotion to church unity as because he found the climate of nominalism in the West at that time more congenial to his own mentality. So it's a, it's a real thing that um, to say that, that the tradition, the Christian tradition, okay, the, the climate of thought that is, as it exists in the 20th century, is a, re- reflects the true preoccupations and concerns of Christ, and b, that it has always been the way that it is now, that when we read the Bible in the light of modern day understanding of these things, that this is um, the truth of the matter, and therefore what the masters say regarding Christianity is wrong, is uh, totally incorrect. And the more that I have discovered, the more I found that the Master's assertions about the teachings of Christ are borne up um, in every area. This is true not only of the things we've talked about today, but on the question of of, uh, vegetarianism, of initiation, um, and other matters too, including, of course, the general um, proportion of moral teaching with spiritual transcendence and so forth, uh, that this is indeed 
the reflection of the of the fact of the matter. Just in closing, um, I'd like to explain a little bit about the the actual Gospels and why I'm taking the Gospel of John as our basis, although we will refer to other Gospels and also to books of the Old Testament too. Uh, you may not realize that the, the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are called the synoptics, which means that they see things in the same way, um, and that they are quite similar to each other. And the fourth Gospel of John is radically different from the first three. It's also somewhat later, and there's been a lot of controversy about exactly why this is. Um, it has been understood from the beginning that John is more spiritual in the sense that the things that he is talking about are less this-worldly and more otherworldly. And it has often been thought, and I think it is correct to say, that John's Gospel was written as a corrective to the other three. That is not that they were wrong, per se, but that they were misleading in that they are not complete. Now, the earliest of the four Gospels is the Gospel of Mark. And in many cases, historically, it is undoubtedly the accurate rendition. There are many, many incidents in which um, the true words of Jesus are probably transmitted only through Mark. Many instances in which the other Gospels have taken a brief thing given by Mark and run away with it. Um, nonetheless, the fact remains that the Gospel of Mark is, is very much shortened and abridged, and there is a great deal taken out of it. Uh, one of the things we will be going into is the discovery, very exciting discovery in recent years, of a, a section of the Gospel of Mark that was taken out of it in which Jesus is described as giving initiation, per se. And uh, it is clear that parts of those original synoptic Gospels were reserved for the instruction of initiates. Other parts were given out to the general public. The climate of the day presumably made that a desirable thing, or maybe it was somebody's error that this began to be done. In any case... Mark is incomplete, and the other two Gospels, Matthew and Luke, insofar as they depend on him, are based on a basically incomplete source. The concerns that were left out of Mark, the areas that were left out, have been pretty much supplied by John. And that is why, from the point of view of, uh, of an attempt to grasp those things which Jesus actually was concerned with, it is important to study... Um, to study John. Another part of it is chronology. Uh, we all assume, I think we know, from childhood, Sunday school, whatever, that Jesus um, lived and taught over a period of three years. And according to John, that's true. Uh, his public ministry lasted three years, and it is punctuated by periodical visits to Jerusalem, which are each one is recounted in the book. In the other Gospels, there is no chronology given, and in fact, it doesn't appear that the events narrated take up more than a few weeks, maybe less. They could all happen, um, you know, in some cases not more than a, a few days maybe actually being depicted. They are all in close agreement at the very end, the events at the end of the life of Jesus. But uh, it seems again as though um, John were written to, to correct a, a, a misleading impression conveyed by the other three. Also, um, 
there is one other aspect of it. Master Kripal has indicated at different times, not in his books, but uh, he did do it in, in private and in darshan sessions and so forth, that the events of Jesus' life as we have them in the Bible may not be necessarily historically true, that there may be a, a combining going on uh, between the life of Jesus and that of other masters. And uh, a careful study of the Gospel of John lends credence to this also. Master suggested specifically that uh, the life of Apollonius of Caiaphas, who was a, a very holy and very remarkable person who lived approximately the same time, although his dates are uncertain. Uh, he may have lived as early as 100 years B.C., or some people put him uh, approximately as a contemporary of Jesus, or some people put him after. Um, Master indicated that uh, there was some collation, some pushing together between Apollonius' life and teaching and that of Jesus. And it is an interesting fact that the events described in the Gospel of John, while it's impossible to say that they did not happen, um, in many cases, in fact in every case, whether, the, whether or not they historically happened, they are there for symbolic reasons. The turning of the water into wine, uh, the healing of the man born blind, and so forth. Every single one is there. They are acted out parables. And uh, it is not possible to say that this is a, a accurate biography of a life exactly as it was lived. But rather, this is a spiritual document expressing truth in various ways, maybe partly through historical events, maybe partly through spoken parables, partly through acted out parables, um, partly through the life of Jesus of Nazareth, partly through the life of Apollonius of Tyana, etc. So all of these things uh, are relevant. And I think next week we will continue and we will discuss the role primarily of John the Baptist, who without question was Jesus' guru, and uh, how that fits in with what we know of guruship initiation and so forth, and uh, possibly um, we'll get into the nature of baptism and initiation and things like that.